Hello, everybody. You're listening to the Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 421, in the slot with Stanley Berryhill III. Big Chillians, and welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Eddie. Eddie, how's it going? Yeah, pretty well. Yeah, things are good. I feel like we, we haven't chatted in a while. We have some, some no, sport true. to catch up on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it wasn't held by the fact we were supposed to record an episode yesterday, and I fell asleep. I was watching the <laughs> Champions League, and I fell asleep with probably... As I remember the game getting into injury time, so it was I was watching the Bayern match, and it was must have been the sort of ninety third minute when I probably fell asleep, and I woke up at eight in the morning. Now, for uh, our American listeners, they are probably saying, "So you fell asleep at four in the afternoon and didn't wake up till eight the next day?" <laughs> so I woke up. I fell asleep at around I guess ten forty five, probably my time ten thirty. I guess yeah ten thirty, and then then woke up at. At eight in the morning, which already for me is an incredibly long sleep. But also, even if I have a good long sleep, I usually wake up once or twice over the course of the night. This was just solid sleep straight until the morning. And then I had the couple of missed messages from you that I saw then at eight in the morning, you know, asking if we were going to record and stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's a rare occurrence for me. But I, I mean, I felt I feel rejuvenated. Well, I, it sounds it. You sound rejuvenated. Yeah, this is just, this is all I needed. Life is going to go <laughs> through the roof from here on out. Well, before we get into sport, because we have, you know, touched on some NCAA basketball, some Masters, some other uh, NFL stuff. Uh, we also have an interview at the end of this with Stanley Berryhill uh, from University of Arizona, who's now an NFL draft prospect. So really interesting interview. So if you're tuning in for that, usually it's about 30, 40 minutes in. Um, but don't skip ahead because apparently Eddie has a very good story for us. And then you can listen to us uh, do a little master's talk. Well, I don't want to oversell my story. It's more of a discussion oh, okay. than a story. Um, but yeah, and if you're a new listener, you know, please subscribe. Leave us a review if you're listening to us on a podcast app that allows you to do so. And, you know, search for the Big Chill Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube to uh, follow us there. And, you know, share share the podcast with a friend. That also always helps us to grow. So if you enjoy the episode, you know, spread it around. But going on to my more of my discussion story. So former Big Chill Podcast co-host Sam celebrated an anniversary the other day. Not his anniversary of leaving the podcast, but his relationship anniversary. We and celebrate the anniversary of him leaving. It's gotten exponentially better since he's left. On a daily basis. It's not a... <laughs> But uh, that's why I slept so well last night. But he um, he said, and this isn't really anything to do with Sam. It just got me thinking. But anyway, so his six-month anniversary, it sounded to me like they hit the six-month mark pretty quickly. And then it turned out that they, they've, just, they've set the start date of their relationship as the date they first hooked up on. Now, I think it's complicated, right, as you get into more adult relationships where you don't necessarily have the are we going out conversation? You know, like it's not like you're in high school and you're asking someone out necessarily, but it is interesting to me. That struck me as being unusual, but I don't know how you, 
in your life have ever tried to figure out, you know, what exactly goes down as the anniversary date, the relationship start date? Yeah, I mean, when you were younger, it was really easy, right? Because there was like a definitive note passed around the classroom with like a yes or no checkbox. And then it was folded uniquely back to you with the yes or no. And then that was stamped. You could put that in a box and you had that for the record if anyone ever asked. You know, those were those were the easy instances. As, as I think you get older, I, honestly, in the current relationship I'm in, we don't really have an anniversary day because I, I don't know what defines it. I don't know how you how you do it. I think if you have a milestone like an engagement or a wedding, then obviously, again, that's an easy definition for an anniversary date. But in today's age, it's as an adult, it's quite hard to define it unless there is some significant moment where, you know, you you knew you had never known this person before and then you met them in a unique circumstance on like this day, you know, then I think maybe you can have an idea. But if it's someone you knew already, what defines that transition point? You never know. No, exactly. And that's sort of thing. And I wasn't, you know, when Sam said that to me, it didn't it didn't strike me as necessarily being wrong, right? Because like, what other day do you choose? At the same time, you know, certainly for me, there have been moments when you kind of first interaction with someone, I won't necessarily say hooking up, but you know, even if it's at a bar and you you kiss or whatever, to kind of put that down as well, that's our anniversary seems bizarre, because you could have a lot of stuff go on between that time and when you're really in a, a full blown relationship. But I think you're right until you yeah. get until you get Is married. It the first time you had like dinner with them. The yeah. first official dinner date, but it, but it can only be just the two of you eating dinner. Like, what if you ate dinner as a group? How, how does that? Met, are they all part of your anniversary then? Do you have to celebrate you, it with everyone that was at the table? If you're Vasilis and you met at an orgy, how do you deal with that? Just everyone comes every year. No pun intended. Yeah. Well, speaking of anniversaries, Eddie, the Masters comes every year and that comes at the same time every year and i believe this year it is the i want to say 86th running of the masters that's just off the top of my head and you know i have such a good memory so <laughs> i don't know if you can <laughs> buy that or not it's it but, started in it started in 1934 so i don't know if they've missed years because of wars or yeah. you know it, it is the 86 running of it. Okay. Um, but I found a bunch of random stats because I know you like random stats. And I know you really love when there's a stat that can influence your betting that has really no true relevance <laughs> to your actual bet. Um, but just to say the Masters has just started as we're recording now. Um, so obviously we're not going to make any picks or anything because Eddie would love to cheat and do all that. But let me give you a few, Eddie, uh, kind of statistics that could influence your betting. And you tell me if you think it's a legitimate statistic. Okay. So no pre-tournament favorite has won the Masters since Tiger Woods in 2005. And currently John Rahm is the, was the pre-tournament favorite. No, because like... The reason why, and this is with a little bit more knowledge about the Masters in general, is yes, it hasn't been a great tournament for pre-tournament favorites themselves, but for the most part, you can pick out, you have to be pretty highly ranked to win the Masters. Usually, you know, there's very few totally surprising winners. You have to have some 
sort of established form in majors and stuff like that. So I, I don't think so. I think the betting markets themselves can often be inaccurate. For example, I mean, just any year Tiger Woods is healthy, you're talking about Tiger Woods being favorite. So already that isn't necessarily representative of form or actual realistic chances of winning. So the only reason I would agree with you is, for example, John Rahm was, I think if you're single figures to win a golf tournament, pre-tournament, I think that's too short to, to really warrant interest. So in that respect, I guess. But that's just more, if you told me that the favorite was, say, hypothetically, Dustin Johnson at 12 to 1 pre-tournament, it doesn't automatically put me off Dustin Johnson that he is pre-tournament favorite. Okay. How about this one then? Kind of alluded to by you. No player outside the top 30 in the world golf rankings has won since Angel Cabrera in 2009. Yeah, I think that matters. And then that's, I kind top of went 30. Do, you think that's kind of a, a good cutoff? I, I don't know necessarily if I would make it 30, but I definitely think, let's say I would not pick someone outside the top 50, which isn't, you know, that's opening up the field quite a lot anyway, because it's not the biggest, you know, tournament in the world. But I do think, I do think you kind of look for, you know, and there's a checklist you can go through in terms of trying to decide whether or not someone has a realistic chance. You're probably going to throw some of them out there. Who knows? Like first time appearance, you're not going to win the Masters. So already you can throw that out. You probably want to see someone who's has good Masters Augusta form. So you're probably looking for someone who's had a top 10 finish there previously or something like that. I, I do think that unlike a lot of other tournaments, you can kind of apply some filters to the field and, and get a kind of educated guess on who has a realistic chance. But um, yeah, I think I think that one makes sense. So you just alluded to another filter. No first-time winner, no first-timer has ever won since Fuzzy Zeller in 1979. Yeah, I think when you hear all of the golfers talk about it, I, I mean, I saw an interview with John Rahm specifically pre-tournament just talking about how difficult it is to putt at Augusta with the way they set the greens up and that so many of the putts you get are uh, almost impossible to read first time because they will trick you in terms of the speed. Uh, and so you'll think a putt's going to be really quick and it turns out to be slow and vice versa on a different hole. And he spoke about the fact that to be successful, you basically putt from memory at Augusta. And so that you can, the winning on that first time is so hard because what he finds is he ends up in a position and he says, okay, I was here three years ago. This was the putt. And what he actually then said is that can then make him play poorly when he plays Augusta, not during the Masters, because the greens aren't as quick. And so then he will putt poorly at Augusta at any other time in the year because he just putts from the same memories he has specifically tied to the Masters greens. Yeah. And then I guess going the other way with that, um, saying that experience definitely counts, the only winners age 43 or older are Jack Nicholas and Tiger Woods. Yeah. I mean, that is quite an old age for a golfer, I guess. Sergio so, Garcia then is done. I mean, I would say no. I mean, that one will change. <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't apply that filter because that's going to change because just as you see, like in any sport, like we see with football with Tom Brady or Cristiano Ronaldo, you know, as players take their – bodies more seriously within the game of golf and as technology improves and as their preparation and their nutrition and their, you know, their workouts and everything improve, you're going to see more and more older winners. So 
I think the age cutoff is one that I wouldn't really consider. So the last one I have is kind of a convoluted one, but it it relates to form going in. And it's every winner since 2013 has at least three top 25 on major tours the year before. Yeah, so I, guess I think that coming in with good form and, and how unlikely it is that someone who, you know, I guess this would kind of put Tiger Woods in that category, someone who has no form and is coming off a major injury <laughs> to add to it. You know, what are his realistic chances of putting in four solid rounds? I mean, I'll go out on a limb and say, I'm going to be amazed if Tiger Woods makes the cut. So by the time people listen to this, you know, even if this episode hopefully will come out tomorrow, but that will be probably midway through the second round. So they'll know by that point whether what I'm saying is really dumb or, or I'm not even going to, I don't think that's a, can be a smart prediction because it's not bold in any respect, but I would be surprised if he even made the cut. If he's playing on Saturday, that's a, a really good achievement for someone who's been out of the game of golf for what, 14, 15 months. Yeah. He's currently one under through 17. <laughs> so yeah, no, he's, he's and, looking and, kind of likely he's going to make the cut. <laughs> well, no, because I mean, I think the big challenge for him, right, is going to be how does his body respond tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, the next I, day I, is going to be tough. I think no one doubts that, you know, all of the reports coming out about how well he was hitting the ball. I, I think it's not surprising that he's playing well in his first round, but it's going to be interesting to see. You know, even he's talking about, well, his recovery has been good so far this week. He's been playing nine round, nine holes and then playing nine holes the next day. Very different to have played 18 today and have to play 18 tomorrow and obviously playing them in, you know, more physically draining conditions. So, look, I hope he makes it. I think every golf tournament becomes infinitely more interesting once Tiger Woods is involved. And if he were to win it, it's an incredible story. But I, I just doubt that he will. I mean, the big talking point, right, about the Masters with his shoes. This is the big drama of the week. Ditch the Nike shoes. He's wearing some foot joys. I found this fascinating. I just thought, you know, he said that basically he needed a type of support from his shoe that he has not had previously with his Nike shoes. Yeah, Nike, on... Nike doesn't sponsor 50-year-old people with terrible back issues. <laughs> I do think it's interesting, right, because so many people... And I see this when I go on golf courses. You've seen this transition of people wearing a more like sneaker type golf shoe over time. And you definitely see it more and more. Obviously, people are just copy what the professionals are doing. It's an interesting example of how the gear that a professional is putting on might not necessarily be the most suitable gear for a person in a different situation. And to have it be as direct with the shoe where maybe, you know, you'll have people in their 60s going out and buying the same shoe that Justin Thomas is wearing, maybe they shouldn't be because maybe that shoe is not built for someone in their 60s who needs a different type of, you know, foot, ankle, knee support uh, that Justin Thomas needs. But what just surprised me so much about that is even if he only realized this a week or two ago, you would have thought that Nike would have just gone into overdrive to put together whatever shoe he needed. It stuns me that he had to go off brand with this shoe and has said that he is working with a team at Nike to design a shoe that is suitable for him going forward. It's just crazy to me that it, that almost, I would have just thought they could have turned that around in 48 hours if they, for someone of the, you know, the, the like Tiger Woods, they're not going to do that for, you know, the 83rd ranked golfer in the world, but this is Tiger Woods. It's kind of the face of Nike golf. 
it's really surprising that they allow this yeah. to happen. I mean, couldn't you just get really nice insoles? <laughs> yeah, or, or get a like good an, pair of orthopedics. <laughs> or that there's not even an old pair of Nikes. You know what I mean? Not a, not a type of shoe that they made in 2005 that's then suitable for the type of support that he needs now. And that somewhere in a warehouse in in Oregon, there's not... You know, I, I would imagine they have every Nike shoe ever made sitting somewhere, right? And it just surprises me that they haven't been able to pull one off the shelf and say, hey, this is the closest thing to what you need from you're getting from your foot joy with the right insole and everything. You're, you'll be good to go. Yeah. Well, I guess the one spot, Eddie, that he won't have needed the comforting shoes was the dinner the night be- the day before or two days before actually the masters starts we've talked about this in previous episodes uh, especially for last year's masters they have the winner from the previous year sets the menu for all the previous winners to come and have a meal together and it's always kind of this prestigious honor of being able to pick whatever you enjoy or that kind of represents you as a person so uh, Hideki Matsuyama, who was the winner last year, got to choose the dinner for this year. I'm going to read out the dinner, Eddie. You tell me what you think. So I mean, I've, I've already seen it, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll well, I'll read it for our, for our listeners who haven't. The appetizers were assorted sushi, sashimi, and yakitori chicken skewers. Then there was a miso-glazed black cod soup, and then a... Miyazaki, Miyazaki Wagyu, which is a Wagyu beef ribeye with mixed mushrooms and vegetables. And then for dessert, it was a Japanese strawberry shortcake. I'm sure, it was, I'm sure it was delicious. I'm sure it was amazing. I mean, that it, sounds it sound, like a really, really good meal. Yeah, we've, we've obviously read some in the past. I'm sure every time they have, you know, the meal there, I'm sure it's always delicious. So I'm, I'm not doubting that. But that in particular sounds great. I know that I don't know, but uh, Jordan Spieth was speaking about it coming into the tournament, how much he was looking forward to that meal in particular once he'd seen the menu, and that he said that that was the best beef he'd ever had in his life. And he said that with apologies to Texas. The Miyazaki Wagyu supposedly is the best ever. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, I mean, you can't go wrong with sushi and chicken skewers as an appetizer, a nice little fish soup. And then a big, nice piece of Wagyu ribeye and then some strawberry shortcake. What, what mean, a dessert. I love the dessert. That's, that's, a, that's a nice icing on the cake. It's not too much. You get a little bit of like cake in the shortcake part, and you get the strawberries nice and fresh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thought of if you are a former champion as it gets to Sunday and say there's two or three people in with a chance of winning it. If part of the calculation that you go into of who do I want to win, if you think about where is this person from and what food are they likely to bring to the table for the champion's dinner, I'd be interested to know if we can get a former Masters champion on. I'd be interested to speak to them and ask them if they ever are, you know, obviously if it's a friend or something in with a chance of winning, that would that would be different. But if you are a complete neutral and you're just watching four golfers, you know, all within a shot or two of each other with three or four holes to play, if you think to yourself, you know what, I'd rather the guy from Japan than the guy from Missouri win because I think we're probably going to get some nicer food. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm certain all of the dinners that they put on are absolutely fantastic. And there's obviously great food from anywhere in the world, but I think I would yeah, consider I, it. 
I think that's the the bigger risk. I think if it's a person from the U.S., it, it, you don't have to go so regional as to where exactly they're from. You can kind of just make it like, oh, you know, steak and potatoes, America kind of thing. But if you get into some of those countries, it, it could get a little dicey. You know, like, for instance, like the Scandinavian countries, they might just come in with salted cod appetizer or something like that. (laughs) No, Scandinavian would be good. It would be just good fish, you know, and meatballs, theoretically, depending. But, you know, I think... That's if someone from Ikea wins. (laughs) No, meatballs are huge in Sweden. Huge. When When I moved to Sweden, it was actually the thing that blew my mind the most, was going to a supermarket in Sweden for the first time and seeing that an entire section of the supermarket was dedicated to meatballs. And I'm not exact. It went it was an entire aisle where on either side of the aisle, it was just meatballs. And we're not talking about in some massive, you know, Walmart, Tesco size supermarket. This is an in-city, relatively small supermarket. And you had more choice when it came to meatballs than you had anything else that they were selling. That's pretty good. So I guess... Lastly, on the Masters, Eddie, is the Masters is known for its quirky traditions. And maybe you know some of these, but maybe our listeners don't. So I want to bring some of them up and tell me how quirky you think they are in the scale of not quirky to Ryan Fitzpatrick, Fitzmagic quirky. (laughs) So have you seen the food prices at the Masters? So this is something they have sandwiches that you can buy and they're crazy cheap. Which, for all honesty, the the cheapest one is an egg salad sandwich or a pimento cheese sandwich for a dollar fifty. I don't know who would buy those to begin with. Well, they're supposed but, to be amazing. Those are the two sandwiches there. In particular, pimento cheese is the is like the signature. I can't sandwich. imagine an egg salad sandwich is amazing. I would Ooh. never use the word amazing with egg salad. Look, I mean the, the reviews that they get are universally yeah. good. I mean, yeah, I like the fact that they have. I think they get too much credit for the low food and beverage prices because they're gouging you everywhere else. So I think they get way too much credit. No, but you know what I mean? When people talk about what the cost of things are, for example, in the in the store that like a master's t-shirt is $90 or whatever, I think. No, no, but. I, no, I know. I, I know what you mean. I think they get too much credit for, oh, you know what? It was really good. My beer cost $4 and my sandwich cost $1.50, but uh, my hat cost $92 and my t-shirt cost 180 And it's like, yeah, they, they got you back there. They, they could give you the cheap shirt and beer, the uh, sandwich and beer. So some of the rules, tipping is banned and cell phones are prohibited at all times. Yeah, they take their cell, take your cell phone off you. Um, the cell phone one I would find annoying. I know, again, people talk about that as being a kind of adds to the magic of the Masters because you kind of get thrown back in time and trying to meet people. You have to go back to these old-fashioned ways of i'll meet you at the 17th green in two hours versus texting people yeah i I guess it helps people to fully enjoy the experience but personally for me a little pretentious i mean yeah i just seen and they have they have pay phones and supposedly there's really long lines to use the pay phones well that's insane (laughs) I mean, that's because who is at the Masters? The only person I could consider calling when I was there is someone else there. So I'm calling. So wait, you have to hope that they're in the booth next to you and that someone's not on that phone? Yeah. So, I mean, that bit I don't get. Apart from the fact that then, and this is probably how they're making more money, 
They're feeding off the fact that someone is making the novelty phone call from Augusta. And, you know, hi, Dad, I'm calling you from Augusta. Isn't this crazy? Then, they're, again, that's just what they're feeding off of. But I do appreciate the no cell phones thing in some respects, but as someone who would respect the idea of actually watching the sport and also not harassing people, either having, I wouldn't have sound on my phone and I wouldn't be harassing people with pictures and stuff, it doesn't make that much sense to me. So some of the rules about the broadcast, which uh, they're very specific about, is you can only have four minutes of commercials per hour. Um, TV commentators can't call them fans or spectators. They must be called patrons. This one drives the, me. No, I'll stop you there. The patrons thing. So annoying. So annoying. <laughs> it just annoys me. So I, I don't even like it. People use the word patron in almost any circumstance. It annoys me. You know, when people talk about patrons at a bar and that kind of stuff, and you can't just say customers or people, you know, it, it's the kind of like, hipster mixology pretentious aspect of running a bar where you'd be like our patrons love it here versus just being like our clients or our regulars or whatever you want to say but the (laughs) people calling people the masters patrons versus you know the fans or the crowd it it gets me slightly i watched a the bbc is doing this it's actually a cool series where they're talking to former masters champions about their they're kind of masters winning shot. And throughout it, like Trevor Trevor Immelman, I watched his bit about it. And then at one moment he had to say, you know, and then the way the patrons were reacting. And I get it. He has to say it, but it's just, yep. it's annoying. You have to say it. And so the other thing you have to say is you can't call it the rough. You have to call it the second cut. That's something the masters says you, you cannot call it the rough. Uh, one of the more famous ones was the Masters band, Gary McCord, in 1995 for the quote, they don't cut the greens here at Augusta. They use bikini wax. <laughs> he was kicked out for that. <laughs> don't come back, Gary McCord. Take your mustache with you. I guess the thing I'm torn with here, too, is there's the element of preserving the kind of institution of the tournament versus, you know, the golf itself has to modernize in some respects. And every part of the sport has to move along with it. And so, you know, allowing commentators to commentate in the way that they would on every other tournament, it seems weird to me to say, no, we're going to, you know, be monitoring your language use. That, that, that bit, that bit, I I struggle to see what the real benefits of that are. And then the last one is just a few about the players. So, they used to have to use the local caddies until 1983, which isn't that long ago. And now you obviously can use your own caddy, but they have to wear the Augusta regulated caddy uniform, which is the green hat, the white jumpsuit. Um, fans cannot wear a backwards hat. You might be screwed on that one, Eddie. Um, or I'm sorry. I'm, so, I'm sorry. Wait, wait. I already messed up. Patrons cannot wear a backwards hat. I'm sorry. Yeah. You can't run. On the course, the no running <laughs> makes sense. Unless you are a player, the no running is really funny to think about. Like, hey, stop running! <laughs> it's just like a random patron. But but the no running to me makes sense because I mean, if you've ever attended a professional golf t- tournament, the 
competition, like the people get very aggressive with trying to make it from one location to another, particularly towards the end of a round. And if they are following a particular golfer, you know, it can get kind of unpleasant. The thing that I think is saddest, though, is you watch the videos of when the gates to the masters open in the morning and then people are, they are like doing, speed walking. They're, yeah. They're just like speed walking to try and get there. I think that's a little sad. I think you just have to fully commit to it. Look, this is walking. We're not going to allow you to walk really, really fast. This is stupid. Yeah. And then we've, we touched on this, I think the last time, but just for any new listeners, uh, people always wonder about the green jacket. So they're allowed to keep the green jacket for one year and then they must return it back to Augusta, and then it stays there. It's still theirs, and they can wear it on the grounds, but they can't take it out. And if you win again, you don't receive a second one unless you get really fat. Then they'll give you a new one. <laughs> See, I don't know if I'm sure about that, though, because I was, Nick Faldo appeared on a popular golf co- uh, podcast the other time. Now, maybe it's because he just so read it. He, he says he has four green jackets that are all there. And that maybe he's changing sizes. Maybe. But he says all four of his green jackets are there. And maybe he bulked up one year and then went back down another. But he does say there was one year where he was bigger because that's the jacket he has to wear now. But that they, <laughs> but, but that he, and I, I think it's four or three, however many he won, it's three or four. But that when he, um, ahead of him attending, he has to tell them which jacket he's going to be wearing. Because that's then they put that out in his locker for him to take out when he arrives. Which I think the interesting thing is that the champion's locker is really small, their locker room. So you have to share a locker with another participant. So that's unfortunate. So you kind of get paired for life, basically, with someone else who then you're sharing (laughs) your locker with them. But yeah. I mean, the, the jacket's ugly, so you wouldn't want to take it off, off the premises anyway. I mean, it's it's. Yeah, but ugly. you're telling me you wouldn't maybe one day want to like roll up to a bar with the Masters jacket on. Come to on. be honest, no, because if I'm a guy who won the Masters, I think I've got a lot of other stuff going for me, and I don't think I Eddie, have to Eddie, we we rolled through Paris with an embassy softball tournament trophy above our shoulders for 24 hours straight. You're yeah. telling me you wouldn't wear the green jacket around? Well, no, but that's the point is we had to do that because no one else would have known who we were. If I won something that was, I mean, the green jacket, it's so ugly that I wouldn't want to wear it out. I would just want to be, you know, Rory McIlroy in a bar. That's, you know, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be like, does no one recognize me? Hold on. Let me slip on this atrocious green. Oh my God, it's Rory McIlroy. So... I mean, I would be honest with you. If I saw someone in a bar wearing that jacket, I wouldn't even assume it was a master's jacket. I would just think that they had an awful dress sense and they were wearing just a disgusting suit jacket. So, yeah, I mean, that's all the master's dump or info dump, I should say, (laughs) that I have. But it's a tradition like no other, Eddie. And we'll see who the winner is this Sunday and if they get to keep their jacket for a year or if they don't get a second one because they've already won. But yeah. uh, moving on, I guess we, we didn't cover the NCAA championship yet. I mean, it's a little old news now, I guess. But uh, Kansas beat UNC in the finals and had the largest comeback ever in NCAA finals history. Yeah. What did you think of the game? 
Um, I, I it kind of. I mean, I think it was good that it had the comeback because you know at halftime it looked like it was just going to be an uninteresting blowout, and I don't find college basketball to be the most compelling sport at the best of times. But definitely when there's a blowout, I can completely lose interest. But no, I thought it was. I thought the best team, well, the better team won. And I think UNC had kind of been riding their luck to a degree throughout the tournament. I think against UCLA and against Duke, I think they were not as good. But And they deserve credit down the stretch against teams. They had been very efficient, and they'd done a good job of executing why other teams had failed. But no, I thought... Yeah, I think an argument can be made that Kansas were the best team over the course of the tournament. Yeah, I think so too. I think the best team won here. It, it obviously for me, I'm a Duke fan, so it's a shame not seeing Duke in the finals in Coach K's last year. But they had every chance to win that game against UNC, especially when you kind of go back to it. They had two two free throws to down two to tie the game, and missed them both. And then on that following possession, UNC hit a pretty crazy three-pointer to go up five and kind of just seal it at that point. So that was such a huge turn of events, you know, missing two free throws and then giving up a crazy three-pointer. And that was the end of that for them. But, you know, yeah, you're right. UNC did did ride a hot streak, the number eight seed in their their side of the bracket. So pretty impressive. Um, And we had the Big Chill podcast bracket challenge and hate to say that the winner was not me but my father so <laughs> well, that makes it sound like there were two people taking part <laughs> you're like oh it wasn't me it was my dad now i mean yeah well, congratulations i'd rather if it were the family i'd rather it be me <laughs> i oh. actually got dead last <laughs> so so we we bookended this yeah as, as a, a family as a family you're average but um yeah, no, congratulations to your dad. I don't think we can give too much congratulations because it's not like anyone nailed their bracket, which is not surprising because it was a bracket full of upsets. Um, but yeah, congratulations. And I suppose maybe one final sporting topic before we move on, obviously, to the upcoming interview and, and anything else, but the Champions League uh, quarterfinals, first legs took place this week. I guess that's one advantage of us of me sleeping through yesterday is that we had we got a full reaction to what took place. So I think on in the you know on the in the Tuesday matches they kind of went to form where you had Manchester City win at home to Atletico Madrid, although only one nil in a match that they completely dominated, although they didn't create that many chances. And Liverpool come away with a three one win against Benfica, so you'd you'd have to say that tie is probably over. And then on Wednesday, uh, Karim Benzema became only the fourth player in history, I believe, to score back-to-back Champions League hat-tricks as he scored all three goals in, Chel- in Real Madrid's 3-1 win over Chelsea. And I guess the most surprising result of the quarterfinals with Villarreal holding on to a 1-0 victory against Bayern, which uh, the biggest upset in terms of expectations going into it. But... Maybe not the most fascinating set of matches. In, in some ways, I think that the Champions League knockout stages have been slightly ruined by the fact that they got rid of the away goals rule. And I do think, in particular when you watch the uh, Manchester City-Atletico Madrid match, 
it, meant, it put Atletico Madrid in a situation where they, they literally had no interest in trying to score. And I think if you still had the away goals rule in place, they would have felt like there would have been a real value in them grabbing a goal away from home because they probably would have thought it's unlikely that they keep a clean sheet against Manchester City at home. And so, whereas now you've put them in a position where they just go into their home leg feeling like they just have to win, and if they win, worst case scenario, it's extra time. And I think that's the shame. Um, it kind of kills some of the adventure that you would have encouraged away teams to take. Yeah, no, I kind of agree with that. And, you know, for the Bayern, um, I'm not too worried about the the loss of Villarreal, especially considered they did this last, right, last stage against Salzburg. They drew 1-1 and everyone was kind of... Sp- little nervous but and then the next round they turned it up and beat them what seven to one so you know yeah i mean i think the there are concerning elements to Bayern's play in general so i think i i'm sure that they will probably figure it out in the second leg you know even in the second half of that match they became much more dominant and it feels like they had sort of figured out a little bit of how to counter what villarreal were trying to achieve but you know, in both the Bundesliga and in Europe, they have shown vulnerability at times. And I also think that what they've was very unbiron like based on the team we've seen over the last sort of decade plus is that they often have lots of possession now, but they're not able to actually translate that into clear scoring opportunities. And equally, they're quite vulnerable on the break. And so, you know, teams kind of have a game plan as to how they know they can play against them, which is to allow them to have this possession in midfield and to kind of absorb that pressure and to know that sooner or later they'll get that chance on the break and that giving Bayern 60-65% of the ball doesn't automatically mean that they're going to score two or three goals. So I don't think they're quite the Goliath that they've been in recent seasons, but I'm, I'm still, I still think they'll figure it out in this round. But I don't think they have much chance to be honest with you, playing against City or Liverpool. I think it's clear that those are the two best teams in Europe, and it would surprise me if any other team in the tournament was able to knock either one of them out. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. And especially if they do the same and, and in the first leg go down, then they're done. Yeah, yeah. It's, no, it's, uh, th- th- those aren't teams that you can then turn around on the second match and win 4-1. to one. Even, even against, the, you know, I think... And this is the utmost respect to Villarreal. You know, that's the only possible opponent they have left where they could maybe afford to do that. You know, I, I think even against Chelsea or Real Madrid, you would say that you can't have, for 50% of the tie, you can't be subpar. And I think Chelsea kind of found that out in the first leg against Real Madrid. You know, it's, it's just, it's not that forgiving. And then I guess before we jump into our interview with Stanley Berryhill. It's worth noting, speaking of NFL draft, a slightly interesting, weird, don't really fully understand trade between the Saints and the Eagles happened last week, where the Saints received the 2022 first round picks number 16 and number 19, and a sixth round pick from the Eagles, while the Eagles got back the Saints' first-round pick at number 18, a 2023 first-round pick, a 2024 second-round pick, and a 2022 third-round pick. 
what what do we make of this? Is this the Eagles just predicting that the Saints are going to implode and that next year they're going to get a top five draft pick? Well, I think the issue. I think it's more a reflection of the fact that the you know the top of the of this draft is maybe not as strong as previous years or what people are accustomed to, and so that the Eagles were in a position with multiple first round picks in a draft class that they didn't feel like they could easily pick out any you know sort of blue chip draft selections with and so moving that along to next year and hoping that next year's class will be a little bit stronger is a way of sort of solving that problem it's an interesting one because the argument could be made that if you're less certain about who the the stars will be in this draft that having more bites at the cherry and more draft picks will help you to maybe you know uncover the right person but i can understand the the move from their perspective in that you know they they could miss on all three picks. There's not a and and they're better off sort of moving that along to next year and hoping that they can have more certainty about what they're doing that time around. Yeah, it, it's it's slightly interesting, and maybe that is an indication that this year's draft isn't super top heavy. But I don't know. It's it's always risky because I think it's better to know the picks you have than risk a pick that you don't know what it is. I mean, maybe we think the saints aren't going to be great next year, but you never know. I mean, I, I, I don't think they're going to be amazing. So I don't think it's the worst bet in the world. I mean, I don't think the saints are going to make the playoffs, right? They're in a difficult division, you know, as particularly with uh, Tom Brady coming back. I, I, I don't think it's the worst bet in the world from the Eagles perspective to think, hey, this should be a top 15 pick. I'm not going to go out and say it's going to be a top five pick because that would be a real collapse on this on the, from the Saints' perspective, which could still happen. But I, I think you're probably looking at a top 15, top 10 pick, and you know that's a good position to be in. Lastly, Eddie, I just had a quick food story for you. I know we like to discuss uh, fast food and kind of pop culture and all that. I don't know if you saw, but Burger King currently has a federal class action lawsuit against it where it is alleged that Burger King has misled customers by portraying its food as being much larger compared with what is served to customers in real life. And they've misled, how they've misled them with the images or the ads? Yes, with like the, the advertisements um, saying that the... For instance, the Whopper, the entire burger is 35% larger than the real-life version with double the meat than what is actually served in the advertisements. Look, I can understand where that's coming from, and obviously allowing people to be misleading with their advertising is not a good thing. So you are kind of, in in literal terms, from a legal perspective, setting precedent there, which, I, I mean, I'm sure already exists. But I don't know who's watching a fast food ad and thinking, you know what, I bet you what I'm going to order is going to look exactly like what I just saw on TV or on the image that's being shown to me above the counter. I think that's the surprising bit. But I do understand why it's important that they crack down on this kind of thing. So, yeah, according to the uh, person who's leading the class action lawsuit, he said, Big or small, justice is justice, and laws are laws. And just because something happens to appear in someone's opinion to be minor, doesn't mean that it is. <laughs> See, that's stupid. That's 
<laughs> that's not the good argument. The argument for it is, hey, if we are saying that it's fine for people to have misleading advertising, it needs to be, we have to crack down that on, across the board because whilst this might not be particularly important, if we let Burger King get away with this, how can we stop a you know healthcare company from getting away from this or an insurance company or whatever it is? I think that's well, the... They, did. they let Theranos get away with it for 15 years, <laughs> yeah. so... <laughs> but, you know, that's that's the important thing versus being like, well, this might not be important to some, but for some of us, it's really, really important. That's a stupid argument. Yeah. He uh, he actually used the example of a vehicle that you can't use Photoshop to enhance the vehicle. You can put it in the best <laughs> lighting and on the best roads, but you can't actually change what the car looks like in the commercial. <laughs> Which would be kind of awesome if you saw this commercial for a Camry and it looked like a Ferrari and then you got to the Toyota dealership and you're like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> Just ordered it online and have it turn up at your door. Yeah. Telling all your friends, you you, you got to wait to see that when this, tur- this car turns up, it is amazing. It's the dark side of CarMax. They deliver it right to your door, but they don't deliver the car that they promised you. That's I mean, the catch. CarMax, not a sponsor. No free ads. Yeah. On that note, should we uh, switch things over to our interview? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Welcome back. Now on the podcast, we're joined by former University of Arizona wide receiver and return specialist, first team, all Pac-12 and current NFL draft prospect, Stanley Berryhill III. Thanks for coming on today. Yeah, no problem. How are you guys doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. How's the, uh, I mean, I guess the natural thing, how's the preparation for the draft going? What's that? Is that a tiring process? Uh, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, now I'm more focused on getting football ready instead of combine prep and pro day prep. So it's kind of a different type of workout, different type of lifting. So I'm just trying to get used to that now rather than all the 40 stuff and the bench press workouts and stuff like that. So it's been good. Yeah, and, and actually, well, I, I'm really interested in about, you know, how you made it to U of A and, and being a walk-on and getting a scholarship and all that. But I, I think now that you've mentioned it, kind of what was the training like when you decided you're not going to come back for your last year, you're going to, you know, a- enter into the to the draft? What was that like? You know, how quickly did you start finding somewhere to train? What were you kind of training on? How did that go? Yeah, so as soon as our last game ended, I probably took maybe – five, six days off, and then I uh, drove out to Las Vegas and started training. Uh, three weeks before I was supposed to, uh, with my uncle in Vegas, he has a gym out there, and he's a personal trainer. So I went out there for the first three weeks, or the last three weeks of December, and then um, I trained out in Exos in Scottsdale from January to March. So, I, I mean, I didn't really have too much of a break. I rehabbed the little nagging injuries I had, and then, uh, then I got to work. And what was that training like at Exos in, in Scottsdale? Because that's a pretty well-known facility where I, there's a lot of uh, like prospects go and train there, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a lot different. I mean, they, they focus more on technique and fixing the little things instead of uh, power lifting like you would see at a normal college program. Uh, it's like a lot of uh, explosiveness type things, a lot of quickness type things. Uh, really focused on technique. Like people could be fast. But the 40 is all about certain techniques. So that's really what they focus on is technique based, uh, not really heavy weight lifting other than your bench press and stuff like that. But it, it's, it was a very different and it was a very competitive environment because you, you see a lot of first round prospects there and 
So it was great to go there and learn and soak in all the knowledge they had. And when you're talking about technique then, and I guess in particular with the, the 40 time, are you having to, are they working on your actual technique in, in running or is it more about how you're starting and, and that, or are you actually reworking your mechanics in your actual running technique? Uh, it just depends on the person. For me, I didn't really have to focus too much on my running mechanics. It was more uh, having my shin angles, uh, like where to have my feet set to start, how I got out on my first step. Little like for the forty, you want to use as you want to waste as much. You don't want to waste that much time. So everything you want everything to be quick. So you don't want your hand to lift and you not go anywhere. So you want everything to be in sync. So that was like my biggest thing was figuring out what techniques were best for me. And it changes, it changed all the way up until pro day. And that's what they tell you that you might like it now, but it might change three weeks from now because you're a stronger athlete or you're, you're a different type of athlete than you were when you first started training. So. And, and then when you're training there, I mean, is it, are you basically training for the like combine events or are you, doing like some days you're focusing on the combine stuff. Other days you're just trying to get faster, stronger, better in your route running. Or is it like super specific to these are the seven things you need to be great at. Let's, let's do that. Yeah. So no, they, they mix it up a little bit. So most of the time it's combine training for the first three weeks. It was straight combine training, getting, getting your baselines and starting to learn on the different techniques. And then about week four, week five, week six, you take, they bring in position coaches and you still work on your position drills because on pro day and the combine, you still do your position position drills. So they bring in position coaches and stuff like that. So they kind of balance it out, but majority of it, the focus is combine training. And then, so you, you just had your pro day, I think a few weeks ago, right? Yes, sir. And how'd that go? It went, it went really well. I put up some good numbers. I think I surprised a couple of people with, some of the numbers I put up in my 40 and my vertical and my bench press. So, uh, open some eyes. I, I feel like. Nice. Was there, was there anything you kind of wish you could have done again, like a second, a second go or. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things like my broad <laughs> jump. It wasn't as good as I hoped. I, I had a real good jump, my first jump and I couldn't stick the landing. So if I could have went back and did that, I think that would have been nice, but I mean, I'm happy with the results I got and can't go back now. So now just focus on what's in front of me. And, and how different is pressure going into either your pro day or the combine versus just a game day experience, which must be more natural to you in some respects now, but do you feel a different level of pressure or a different type of pressure? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a little bit different because uh, you're banking on these drills to set you up for the future in the NFL and, a lot of teams, that's what they look at the most are your combine testing time. So, yeah, it's a little bit different than when you're playing in a game. I've played in a million games, but I've only done my pro day one time. So, yeah, there were some nerves there, but you kind of learn to shake it off and just perform to your best ability. So then then past pro day, now what's the focus shifted towards, like in training? Uh, yeah, now it's just shifting to more receiver stuff. Uh getting back in the playbook just in case I have interviews and they ask me about the plays that we ran, stuff like that, uh, watching film, uh, learning to break down defenses, and just focusing more on my receiver craft rather than my speed and my explosiveness. So that, that's just really the big change to me, I would say. 
And so, I mean, I guess Frank's already referred, like alluded to it a little bit, but I guess it would be interesting to kind of go back to the start of your collegiate career as a yeah. way of, of kind of talking about how you've got to the point that you're now at. But you kind of, you came into the to college not heavily recruited, well, unrecruited and as a walk-on. What was that process like? And then also sort of how confident were you then in going to school that you were going to be able to make a place for yourself on a team? Uh, yeah, I mean, being a walk-on is always hard, but um, playing in the Trinity League and playing against a competition I played against in high school, I knew that I belonged at a Division One program, and all I needed was an opportunity to prove myself, and Rich Rod gave me that opportunity, and I kind of just took it and ran with it, always played with a chip on my shoulder, and just always had the confidence that I was good enough to play at a Division One school. It's, I mean, it's, it's pretty awesome, and then... Um... I guess the unfortunate thing for, for you is you went through a lot of coaches in your, in your tenure yeah. at U of A and, and what, what was that like? I mean, is it, are you having to learn basically a brand new playbook every time someone new comes in? I mean, that must've been super difficult. I, I, I think now maybe it helps you prepare for kind of like yeah. a pro day thing. Cause you, now you're used to changing it up, but how, how was that when in real time, when you were a college yeah. athlete <laughs> in real time, it's just like, you never know what to expect because one day you have a coach and one day he gets fired or they leave and go somewhere else. So, I mean, I, I had three different receiver coaches, uh, three different head coaches, and they all ran different offenses. Rich Rod ran more of a RPO air raid offense and uh, Sunland's staff ran more spread and then Coach Fish ran the pro style. So, I mean, it's nice to get all the versatility looking back at it, but it was kind of a challenge, but uh, it wasn't too bad. Not as bad as most people would expect. In the moment, do you appreciate the fact that preparing you more for the future, that you are getting this exposure to different types of offenses and, and different strategy? Or is it just more of a concern that maybe now this shift in, in approach might mean that you're not able to sort of perform quite as well as you were in a different regime and that maybe you're not able to then you know, show off your talents in, in quite the same way? Yeah, no, I view it as a positive thing uh, for the most part, knowing three different types of offenses, uh, like you've seen the spread come out in the NFL more and more now. So knowing the spread offense and being in the pro style offense and the air raid offense, I think it's just added a couple tools to my toolbox, being able to face and overcome adversity with coaches changes and having to learn a new playbook every couple years. I think it actually is going to benefit me more than it would hurt me. Yeah. And, and out of the three, what style did you like the best? I liked the pro style the best. It was uh, what I ran my senior year of high school, and I was the most successful my senior year of high school. And then I got to run in my senior year of college, and I was the, that was my best year I had, too. So it kind of goes hand in hand and easy, easy to learn. It's kind of self-explanatory at times, but it was a nice challenge and one that helped out a lot. And I guess a net on from that which which skips your process in a bit but then looking you know we obviously you're you know hoping to be playing in the nfl next season are there particular offenses that you look at that you really wish you could be part of i mean obviously any one of them would be a good one but are yeah there, you know when you're watching a game are you thinking that's a system i would love to be part it's, of it's the one with patrick mahomes that's <laughs> the offense <laughs> yeah i mean it doesn't matter to me really but there's 14 teams in the NFL that run the offense that we ran at U of A this past season. So being able to play for one of those teams would be nice. Just being able to have a step up 
on learning the playbook. But to me, it doesn't matter. I just want an opportunity to play at the next level. And I think I'm a pretty quick learner. So if I have to pick up a whole new offense, then I have no problem doing that. And I don't mind doing that. But just really want an opportunity. The the offense. And I think because, you know, most of our listeners are in the U.S., but we have a sizable number of them who are outside of, of the U.S. and who, you know, even if they're big football fans, might not be that familiar with what a playbook looks like and what goes into learning and understanding a playbook from a player's perspective. As a wide receiver, are you learning just kind of your route and what you are responsible for doing? Or are you trying to get a sense of what the overall design is from the entire offense? Yeah, as a receiver, uh, you try to learn, like for young guys, most guys just try to learn what they have to do or what their position group is doing. But when you get a little bit older, you want to start understanding the concept. So at, for me, I learn everything from the running back, what they do, to the all four of the receivers are the three receivers and the tight end. I try to do that because say that you're running a play and you might have a blank on what you're doing, but you know what the outside guy is doing. And you know that there's only a select few routes that, that go with that other route. So I try to learn the concepts more than anything, because if you know the concept – uh, that's going to give you the best chance to be successful. So I try to learn at least what all the skilled players do. I don't really focus on what the linemen do or what the quarterback has going on, but all the skilled players, it's good to know what they're doing. So you could have a step up and you know where they're going to be at. So like if you do forget your route, but you know their route, you could run a route that could help out the whole play instead of, you know, just knowing you're around, then you blank, and then you don't know what you're doing, and it looks crazy. So, yeah, and then I guess kind of going off of that, you also played in the 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 Shrine game, yeah. and so I guess walk us through that a little bit. So this is kind of you know after after you're done um, with college, you kind of have this kind of like a showcase game, I guess you could say, at, at the collegiate yeah. level, um, and how does it work in terms of you know who sets the playbook? Do you have do you have a full playbook? Do you have like half a playbook? Like how does that work? Because if it's not the one you're used to, right, you're kind of yeah. in a disadvantage a little bit. Yes. So I mean, with the Shrine game, um, we had the Colts offensive coordinator was our head coach, so we kind of ran the Colts offense, which is very similar to the offense I ran at U of A. So I feel like I had a, a step up ahead when I was there, and I was able to play fast. But they give you installs. So one night we'll get. Uh, First down, second down install, run game install, play action install. So you get like two or three installs a night and like you just have to hit the books hard because you got to know the plays at the practice the next day. Uh, It wasn't too complicated. They kind of made it basic for us, like the basics of the offense. And they added in a couple play action plays and a couple plays that like a shot plays, stuff like that. But uh no so you just get it installed every day and it's kind of up to you if you're going to learn it or not so and then kind of eddie asked about the pro day and how nervous that was it it looks like the shrine game would just be like a lot of fun but at the end of the day it's kind of a showcase for you so is it a little stressful and kind of every day going out and practice and even you know you have scouts and everybody watching your practices and there's daily updates online you can see of how so-and-so didn't practice was it a little more stressful than probably it should have been or how did that go uh no i don't think it was stressful at all you met a lot of new guys a lot of great players a lot of nice coaches talked to some scouts uh 
it was only stressful during meeting times. Like when you got out to practice, it was kind of have fun, make plays and do what you do on the field. It was the most stressful time was meeting times, being in there for five or six hours throughout the day, trying to like the Shrine game was long schedule, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day. You had something going on. So just the long schedule is what kind of kind of drained you. But it wasn't really stressful to me, I don't think. I think I just went out there and tried to have fun and try to make the most of the opportunity. And, you know, you're saying you're talking to scouts and stuff. What are are they just asking pretty standard questions? Are they asking some some of those like crazy questions you hear about on, yeah. on interviews and stuff or? Yeah, for the most part, it's pretty standard. Um, some coaches will kind of dig and try to get at you and see if you slip up and say anything that you're not supposed to say, or they test you and ask you, what do you do after a game or something like that? And see if you talk about going out and partying and stuff like that. But um, I think it's pretty standard for the most part, unless you've had something come up on your record in college from what I heard. But if you have a pretty clean slate, it's just uh, getting to know the basics of uh, the guy they're talking to. So when you look back on kind of working your way then, kind of I know we're hopping around your, your collegiate career a little bit here, but working your way into the team at the University of Arizona, was there a moment when you started to feel comfortable in the sense that you kind of knew that you'd established yourself and made it? Uh, yeah, for sure. I would say my my freshman spring ball. So the first spring ball I had, I redshirted my freshman year, and then I went into spring ball with the new staff, was real confident, knew the playbook real quick and made a lot of plays in the spring ball. And then that's when you started seeing the respect of the other players and the respect of the coaches and people noticing all your hard work. So I wouldn't necessarily say I knew I made it, but I knew that I belonged um, at the division one level because I was playing with the best of them. So I think that's like when it kind of clicked in my head. And then a question that, your toughest opponent over the course of your time in college was there a particular uh, co corner you both in terms of individual players you were up against and also just from a team perspective yeah of course uh jack or not jack jones um trent mcduffie from washington uh bookie from washington uh those are two guys that were really tough real scrappy kind of guys and then uh, also chase lucas from asu i played against him a lot growing up so we kind of know each other's game. So he kind of followed me around for most of that game against ASU. And I would say those are my three toughest opponents. Um, being in the slot, you could face a corner, you could face a safety. So just kind of studying and knowing what's, what, what to expect. I mean, I didn't really face that many tough opponents, I would say, but those three guys were, were pretty good. Have you yeah, and I think – I was going to say, I think McDuffie is – a he's like a first round draft prospect, right? For yeah, corner. He, so that's, that's high he, level. <laughs> yeah. And, and how'd you do against them? I did pretty well. I didn't go against him <laughs> much this past year. I went against him back in 2018 is when I played against him the most, uh, just real aggressive. He kind of didn't have a name for himself when we played against him yet. Like he wasn't too popular like he is now. So it kind of catches you off guard with his quickness and, he looks like he's short, stocky, and slow, but he could actually run a little bit. So uh, he's pretty good. <laughs> it's an interesting scouting report on him. The, how, how much 
in terms of as you go through the career, your college career, and and people still start do start to build a reputation for themselves, in particular in terms of talking about you know whether they'll make the NFL and sort of where they might be drafted. How much does that? Do you notice a change in people's behavior over time? And then when you're kind of going up against them, does that change their interactions with you in terms of their ego and and the way they might sort of deal with you as a as an opposition player? Um. I wouldn't say. I would say most guys that I've played against who are up for the draft, they're pretty. They're pretty humble. There, there's a lot of guys that aren't humble, but they're not the guys that are projected to go high, as um, like Trent and Kyler Borden and all those kind of guys. Um, you don't really see the attitude change too much. Most of the guys who are up for the draft and who are projected to go high have always played like a dog and had a chip on their so- shoulder. So, I mean, there's not too much of a change that I really noticed or I really paid attention to. I have one question specifically relating to a topic we haven't touched on now, which is, you know, you also excelled on special teams, which, you know, Frank mentioned uh, in your introduction, you were a gunner uh, on, on special teams. How much, how much technique, how much sort of awareness is going into that? Or is that just a case of you, you kind of beating the man in front of you and, and, and kind of getting there as quickly as possible. Is there much beyond yeah. that that's going into it? Uh, not really. I mean, you have your techniques and you learn your techniques, but uh, the biggest thing is knowing where the punt's going to go or where it's supposed to go and making sure you win on that leverage. So, like, you don't want a punt that's going to the left and you do an outside release to the right and then you get shielded off because you took a bad release to the outside thinking you could beat him with speed. Um, but to me, it's just winning a one-on-one battle. I'm a better athlete than you are across from me. And if I could beat you down the field, I'm a force a fair catch, make a tackle or uh, force him in somewhere else. So somebody else can make a play. And I guess on the opposite side, when you're returning, I feel that's gotta be one of the scarier positions in football. Still, how, how, how do you rationalize doing that? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you just got to trust – you got to trust your blockers and you got to trust your instincts. I mean, I've seen a lot of guys, and I'm sure you guys have seen, like, on highlight tapes, guys get blasted because they don't call a fair catch or you see guys muff punts because they look down, like, right before the ball gets to them. But um, to me, it's just if I, I'm going to look in the air, I'm going to track the ball, and I'm going to take one more glance. And if I see that glance where if it's a good punt and I know that the dude's going to outkick his coverage, then I'm most, most of the time going to take it. But if it's a short, high punt, uh, be safe and just fair catch it because you would rather want possession than a fumble or something like that. But the biggest shock to me was the difference between college punt return and playing at the Shrine game and having the pro-style punt return. And the college punt return, as soon as the ball snapped, everybody can run down the field in pro – only the gunners get the free release. And so you have a lot of room to work with in the pros if the gunners are blocked up. So I think it may be easier to be a punt returner in the in the pros than it is in college. I mean, in college, you see that center snap the ball and he's taking off full speed. And he's not the most athletic person, but if he gets a hit on you, it's not going to feel good. Well, there we go. There's a little bit of confidence to kind of war. Yeah. If you do get your chance in the uh, in the pros to return a punt, you're you're to be easier <laughs> how late i mean you kind of addressed it there but what's the kind of latest you'll make up your mind as to whether or not you're actually going to have call a fair catch 
is it literally just that initial glance? Is there ever a moment where it's in kind of instinct right at right as you're making the you know the balls dropping down or? Yeah, for me, I uh, I try to do it as early as possible so I can focus on catching the ball. But I've seen guys like I'll be running down on Gunner and I'll get probably a yard and a half away from him and he throws up his hand last second and I'm like, oh man, like you, I almost was about to launch into you. You're lucky you caught a fair catch and. One time I've, I bumped a guy on accident and the ref gave me a warning. I'm like, what do you expect? He's calling a fair catch right before the ball hits his hands. But it's just preference, I would say, because some punt returners call it late. Some punt returners call it early. But normally, most of the time when you call it early, it's, I think that's the smartest bet. That's the safest decision. And, and I think football fans probably always wonder this, too. How much free reign do you have in deciding whether it's a fair catch? Are there certain times of the game where you're told fair catch this no matter what? Or do you always kind of have the, the, the option? Uh, for the most part, you get the option. There may be a time or two where the coach just doesn't really know what's going on with the, um, with the opposite team or what they're trying to do. And they'll tell you just a fair catch so we can get a look at what they're doing. And, because teams, you might game plan a certain way and they might switch it up the first punt and everybody's like, what's going on? So for the most part, you get the free range and the decision's up to you. But sometimes the coach would tell you, like, right, just fair catch this one and we'll see what happens for the next time. And cool. then and I think a question a lot of football fans ask themselves, whenever anyone muffs a punt, it looks bad. How yeah. hard? How hard is it at times to actually catch it and – were there particular punters who just in terms of the kind of the way the ball is spinning coming down towards you where it's significantly yeah. tougher than others? I guess we'll do Australian I mean, style too, right? How is that changed? Yeah, Utah, BYU, they're known for having those kind of Aussie punters, left-footed left punters, um, that sometimes the ball looks a little funky coming off. The spiral uh, a lot has, could have a lot of tell sometimes, so you just have to be like – it's all in pregame knowing how the ball's coming off their foot. And that's where I kind of get where I judge it from the beginning. But yeah, I faced some tough punters. I've, I've muffed a couple of punts. I muffed one against BYU, muffed one against ASU, and I muffed one against U USC about two or three years ago. So yeah, I mean, it happens to the best of them. And uh, it's really about just having the confidence. Most time when people uh, muff the balls because they misjudge it or they think they're going to get hit and, Sometimes the ball will be coming straight down at you and then it'll tell last second and you've muffed the ball. But I mean, you got to have a short memory when it comes to that kind of stuff. And if, if you had to choose, oh, go ahead, Eddie. Well, I was just going to say you're lucky because, you know, as Frank and the listeners of the podcast will be well aware, I'm the, the kind of greatest punter there never was. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so you're, you know, your career could have been vastly different in terms of your punt return success had you had to come up against this, uh, this leg. Yeah, Stan, I don't know how much you know about rugby, but uh, Eddie has proclaimed that he can kick a rugby ball out of the stadium if he wanted to. So that's that. That's <laughs> what you're. Not, what, that's what you could have been dealing with. This, <laughs> oh man, I, I don't want to go against that man. Hopefully there's no rugby punters that can kick like that in the NFL. <laughs> well, just let. I mean, just let me know. You know, if you need, if you need to do another. <laughs> you know, a video in the future just to show off your your punt return skills. We can we can we can put something together. Yeah, uh, we'll we'll, we'll fly you all the way in, Eddie, just so <laughs> you can get a few kicks. Yeah, I'm sure. Exactly. So if if you had to choose, I mean, obviously, I'm sure you'd say you'd do both. But what do you like better, kick return or punt return? 
I like punt return. I mean, kick return's nice too, but punt return, um, it's just if you can make that one first guy miss, it's kind of like you're picking up at least 10 yards. So just trying to make one guy miss and picking up a first down is what our coaches preached a lot. But punt return, I feel like, has a lot of big playability over kick return. Yeah. And then, and then as a receiver, who, you know, who did you try and model yourself after growing up? You know, who, who did you look up to and who did you want to be like as a receiver? Yeah. I mean, there's a bunch. I mean, Deshaun Jackson was probably the first guy I was really like, Oh man, I want to be like him. He's super fast. He's scoring touchdowns. He celebrates. I mean, then there's Danny Amendola, Wes Walker, uh, Julian Edelman, and then recently this past year, Cooper Cup. I mean, we ran the same offense, literally the identical offense of the Rams. So I watched a lot of the Rams football. I watched a lot of Cooper Cup film with Coach Fish and Coach KC. And those are kind of the guys I modeled my game after later in my life, like tech route technicians and able to get open in space and make plays. That's a pretty big transition from Deshaun Jackson to yeah Edelman and Wes Welker that's a, a little bit of shift in mentality I mean it makes sense for the for obviously the way you've then ended up playing in your in, in college but is there a is there an NFL wide receiver I mean obviously Cooper Cup maybe still underrated in some respects in terms of you know what he's able to do but is there an NFL receiver you look at and think they don't get the credit that they deserve for what they're able to kind of achieve on the field or what they bring yeah to their I mean team? Like Brandon Cooks, I mean, a lot of people overlooked him once Odell got on the uh, Rams. And then even Odell Beckham, I mean, people were doubting him for the last couple of years when he was on the Browns. And then you see he goes to another team, and that's all it takes is just the right system. So, I mean, I'm sure there's many guys in the NFL who get overlooked and who aren't maybe aren't performing as high as they should be. But I'm sure there's going to be a lot of guys here coming up soon that are going to make some noise in the NFL. Yeah, being a being a Giants fan, I have some terrible memories of Deshaun Jackson just ruining the Giants. I, there's one in particular. I remember I was at the game and they continued to punt to him after he had like two or three really good returns, and then they punted to him in the fourth quarter. I think they were either winning or it was a tie game, and Deshaun Watson just took it to the house on the punt yeah. return, and everyone in the stadium was booing, just be like, "Why are you still punting to this guy?" Yeah. He was when, when he was on his prime. He was he was a force. Yeah, for sure. And it's it's cool that you mentioned that you guys run the Rams offense because I think this year there was that uh, the route that Cooper Cup ran, the Ocho route, that kind of got blown out of proportion a little bit when when it was it the Bucks Eddie I think when he just embarrassed yeah. the Bucks vendor. Did you guys actually have that route in your playbook, or after you saw that, did you did you want to put that in and see yeah. <laughs> have you do yeah. it? <laughs> we kind of had it. Kind of, it was like. He did a little bit more, but ours was like our just our choice route, which is what we went to on third down. We never really ran it in the red zone, but on third down, that was our go-to. If you go back and watch my film, you will see a lot of choice routes on third down. And But he had like a – I don't know. He ran like a choice route and then went out and then came back in. Uh, it was like a combination of a choice route and a whip route. So, I mean, uh, we didn't really have that exact play in the um, playbook, but we had things similar to it. So I guess saying that, you know, you've kind of tried to model your game after, you know, players like Jackson and and Amendola and, and Welker, 
they seem a little different and Jackson kind of seemed more like a deep threat kind of guy. Whereas yeah. Welker and Amendola were kind of in the middle slot routes, run a lot of slants and things like that. What, what do you prefer to run? I like, I like a lot of the slot routes, open field, uh, getting leverages on mismatched defenders. But I also like to take the top off when I get the chance. I mean, I didn't have too many chances in college, but that's something I hope I will be able to do. Just kind of find an even balance between the two. Receiver, are you happy that you, you're now playing in an era of the game where you don't have to be too worried about kind of going over the over the middle and just having your head taken off on a play? Uh, nah, because there's sometimes where you do come across the middle and they're still going to hit you regardless of if they're going to get a flag or not. So going through the middle, I never think, like, I'm about to get hit. I just go full speed, and if I get hit, I get hit. But most times I could avoid getting hit by using speed and knowing where guys are supposed to be and where I'm supposed to be and just getting to landmarks. So I've never been scared to come across the middle. I'll do it and get hit, and I'll get up and do it the next play. I never really worry about that kind of stuff. I have a question. You, over the course of I mean, it was a huge debate as to whether or not college athletes were going to be able to be paid. And obviously, during your time in college, you had the NIL come into place. Yeah. How much did that change sort of the experience of you, perhaps, or even the sort of teammates that you yeah. had? Uh, yeah, for me, I mean, I didn't really get too many endorsement deals. I mean, made a couple hundred dollars here and there, but now you see it, it's a recruiting pitch. I mean... You come here, we'll get you an NIL deal. We'll get you some money. So, I mean, I don't necessarily think it's the greatest thing for college football, honestly. I think it takes away from the guys playing and the guys – like some guys could be more focused on NIL deals than actually playing, and you see that at different schools and you hear about stories like that, and guys will think they made it in college when they're – that money's not always going to be there. So, I mean, I think the NIL deal should come with maybe like – when you're upperclassmen and you've already you get good grades and stuff like that, because there's guys who get NIL deals who probably shouldn't be getting NIL deals. But I mean, hey, that's the way it works nowadays. So I guess that's what it is. I didn't really try to focus too much on it because I knew like it was the tail end of my career and uh, wasting time on that was just taken away from football. So. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that's a, that's a great attitude to have, and and you you're completely right. You see it now. There are athletes that are coming in as freshmen and have already million dollar endorsement deals. And it's, they haven't even, they haven't played it down yet. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's just ridiculous. I mean, if I was a coach, that wouldn't be how I got guys to come to the school, but Hey, if that's what gets, what sells tickets and what gets five-star athletes in your building, then that's what you got to do. What I've also thought too, I mean, I've always felt this just assessing professional sports in general, when you then have this huge disparity within a team, if you have this situation where you have one guy on your team making a million dollars and everyone else is, you know, either, you know, like what you refer to, you're, you're picking up the odd little thing here and there, which could be nice, but it's not life changing. You know, I, I feel like there's a greater possibility of some resentment building within the team or again, yeah. it's being fueled in the wrong way because you're kind of putting people on different levels for reasons that maybe they shouldn't be. Exactly. I, I think that's exactly why it shouldn't be a big thing because college football is all about, guys coming together not really making money i feel like with the nil deal it could be either really good or it could be really bad i think it can make the game worse or i mean i guess it can make the game better too but 
I just feel like I don't know. I don't think I don't, I don't really I'm not I don't really care for the NIL thing. I just I think kids should just play and make money when you get to the NFL. Play hard enough to make it to the NFL and money will come. I don't think you should be chasing money like that in college. So I guess just to go, let's go all the way back. <laughs> um, growing up, were you, did you just excel at every sport you did? Were you a multi-sport athlete? And then was football always the passion or did it kind of develop later on towards like uh, high school? So, yeah, I mean, growing up, I literally played everything, lacrosse, volleyball, soccer, track, basketball, baseball, you name it. But once I got to high school, I kind of dived down to just football, basketball, and baseball. I mean, a lot of people would say baseball was my best sport if you ask people who grew up around me and people who coached me and stuff. But football and baseball were for sure the two sports that I've always wanted to play growing up. And I started both of those sports when I was five. And, I mean, I was always great at both sports and uh, just got overlooked, but it is what it is. And So, I mean, so why football? Why did eventually you, you get into football over the baseball? I think football is just easier for me to get a scholarship in. I mean, go to college, baseball, they don't get full ride scholarships. And I was hoping one day that I could be a two-sport athlete on a football scholarship and then go and play baseball, but it didn't work out that way. So football it was. Well, we'll give you the big chill. We've got a fast pitch uh, softball team here in Paris, and it lines <laughs> up perfectly with the NFL offseason. So, you know, if you're trying to keep yourself fit and healthy at any point and you just want to come and kind of keep the baseball uh, <laughs> baseball kind of muscles working, you know, there'll, there, there'll be a team here waiting for you. If, uh, All right, sounds good. <laughs> that would be pretty funny if you just showed up one day on vacation, <laughs> brought his stuff, wanted to get a workout in. <laughs> there you go. What, what positions did you play in baseball then? Uh, I played outfield for the most part, a little bit of first base. Uh, uh, well, actually, middle... they're full on outfield, so don't don't worry, don't bring your stuff, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, middle relief pitcher a little bit, but mainly in the outfield. Being a lefty, I was limited to those four or five positions. So, do you think being left-handed at any point helps you as a wide receiver? Is it is it an advantage in terms of what your dominant hand could be in catching, or if you kind of prefer going one way or the other, if you know, a corner or a safety might not be as, as used to that? Um, no, I don't think that really makes a difference. I think I catch the ball on both sides equally as well. So, I mean, I don't think there's a big difference, but maybe, I don't know, maybe people aren't used to the left hand. So when I am on the left side, uh, they look to play through the right hand because that's what most people are dominant with. But I could easily catch the ball with the left hand if, like, the right hand's getting held down or something like that, but I think it's it's pretty it's the same to me, I would say. I keeping with that, I guess, what what's your ideal cornerback to go against? Do you like someone who does a lot of hand fighting and you can beat them off the line or or how what do you prefer? What kind of style do you think works best or do you excel against the most? Yeah, I would say the off and soft corners like the the catch technique corners who who don't really use hands right at the line. Um, I mean, I've played against both, and I think the often soft and the, the catch technique corners are the ones that I excel the most on. But I've been against some rough corners and try to get their hands on you, and that's just, just winning 
at the line of scrimmage battle. And once that happens, they're kind of done for. So, so you, 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 in all NFL special teams, is there an NFL corner or safety out there who you might be want to say you get your chance to go against them? You think you're gonna have a lot of success against? No, I'm just gonna stay humble and. When that our time comes, we'll just see what happens. <laughs> All right, we'll get that answer off the air. <laughs> so, when when you're talking about the the corners that are up in your face, it always makes me think of of like trash talk on the field. Yeah, ha, are you a trash talker or or do you just stay quiet and let the let the game do the talking? Um, I could chirp a little bit, but it's normally <laughs> when when they chirp first. I'm not the guy to just start talking trash to somebody for no reason normally it's like if a guy says something to me i'll say something back but for the most part i just kind of keep to myself and just let my game talk and were were there players that going into the game you knew they were going to try and get in your head and just chirp you the whole game yeah did you have course. that on the scouting report <laughs> of course it's uh chase lucas and jack jones the asu corners they love to talk and it's all it's all fun and games but sometimes it can get a little chippy but at the end of the game, I've known Chase for a while. I met Jack Jones at the Shrine game. So, I mean, they're cool guys. So uh, we don't take anything past the field. Might say some things here and there on the field in between the lines. But after the game's over, it's what's up, how you doing? And then just keep, keep it going. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I think maybe, Ed, if you have a last question, I have – I also have have one here. This is kind of just a a fun one. So – the past week or two, it came out that DK Metcalf might have the worst diet on the planet and eats basically candy and McDonald's every day and looks like an absolute freak. Yeah. Are you following in those footsteps? <laughs> yeah, man. I hate to say it, but it's hard to stay away from the foods you grew up having your whole life. But I, I mean, I've changed my diet up a little bit. I'm a little bit more healthier than I was in college since I've been in this off season, but you might catch a soda or two around or some candy or some chips around, but I try to, I try to live with them as much as possible. So what's the go-to candy then? I like the, uh, air, uh, the airhead, like soft food bites. I, those are, <laughs> that's what I go to. It's, they're kind of a newer candy. So not many people know about them, but they're pretty awesome. Awesome. There you go. Yeah, gonna... Come give me. <laughs> yeah. There was the NIL deal you missed. <laughs> <laughs> Eddie, it's hard, it's hard to follow up on the on the question that's so specific about food. You've like taken us <laughs> down a different path. <laughs> in, in terms of then, in your nutrition in college, how much of that is to kind of keep it on the same theme? How much of that is controlled by the team? How much of the food is being provided for you, and how much are you kind of on your own in terms of working out what you're going to eat, and how much like how heavily involved is the nutritionist say in, in that in that meal planning? Yeah, they don't really tell us what we're going to eat. Like, they don't tell us what we can and can't eat. But they do give us a lot of tips on what we should eat before games or tips you should eat throughout the day, how much water you should have throughout the day. But they provided us three meals a day, so we have all-you-can-eat breakfast. And depending on the day, uh, they'll provide a lunch every day that they'll cater in. So there'll be, like, two or three different options we could choose from, which are normally pretty healthy but still taste pretty good. And then we could either get red card dinner where we have like seven restaurants where we could go or um, or we'll eat in BDK, which they'll have the chefs cook us dinner or they'll get something else catered. And it just depends. But the nutritionist is pretty good about helping us if we want to gain weight, maintain or lose weight. 
you just talk to them and they'll kind of help you out. And then when you did the, the pro day training in Scottsdale, was that something where they were giving you specific meals or are you on your own or did they do everything in that process? Yeah. So everything in that process, when you're in Scottsdale, you get three meals provided every day. Um, you choose all your meals at the beginning of the week and then they have them made for you at certain times and you go in, eat a lot, drink a lot of water and protein shakes and supplements and vitamins and stuff like that. So it was pretty, it was pretty crazy. The food was actually really good though. A lot of people said that it wasn't going to be good, but I guess I got a new chef this year and it was pretty good. Nice. Yeah, that was, I, I was always, so I did track and field at Penn state and one of the things I always thought was if I could ever make it as a pro, that would be some of the most fun aspect of it is the, when you get to that high level, you have your training is so detailed and everything is so taken care of that. I, like whenever I used to watch the people go to the, those kind of types of like combine camps, I thought it was the coolest thing. Cause all you do is you go there, you train, they give you your meals. They tell you what to do. You go to bed, you wake up, you do it the next day. Like, yeah, that's it. It was the easy, it was kind of easier than, playing on a college team i mean it was so much different you have so much more time it's like everyone's a grown man working for the same thing you don't have to worry about students missing academic appointments or you don't got to worry about school you're just focused on one thing so i I liked it a lot all right i actually have a couple more questions now you've you've mentioned complete balance how much focus of this of the student aspect was there for you over the course of your college career yeah so i mean i graduated early i graduated in three and a half years so school has always been a priority to me i was an education major so i take four or five classes a semester because the education classes aren't too bad they're not like the business majors or the law majors and stuff like that so i mean i kind of find it even balanced at first it was hard to to balance school and football but as you get older and as you mature you kind of find a balance and you know you can't procrastinate homework assignments. So it was kind of stuff like that. I, at least you didn't come up with the, like the, I mean, it was UNC, right? Who had their issue when like every player was taking Swahili or whatever, because it was just the guaranteed A. But <laughs> I, one thing we haven't really asked you about, I mean, obviously you've, you're declared for the draft. What are you hoping to happen on draft day in terms of where you want to be drafted obviously the answer to that is as high as possible and and yeah you know, but realistically kind of where is it you're thinking you might land on on the day itself i mean i don't know it's so up in the air like you see you see when i first declared i was an undrafted free agent now i'm on people's mat uh mock drafts is early as a fourth round pick, but you never know. That's just people's, their opinions of you. So you don't know what the scouts are thinking or what the GMs have in mind. So, I mean, if my name is called, my name is called. If not, I just want an opportunity to play in the NFL. And, and, and where on, and on draft day, where are you going to be watching it? Uh, so I'll be in Phoenix. It's my aunt's 70th birthday the same day. So during the day, it'll be her, her, um, birthday party on the last day where I think my name should be called. And then um, that night the draft comes on around what, four or five. So like after that, we have an Airbnb set up that we're all going to go to and hopefully see if my name gets called that day. What, what a way to, to get away from your aunt. <laughs> yeah. I know, Poor I aunt. Him, I, I know I told him, 
I told him like it's all about her until her birthday party's over, and then then we'll focus on me. So, so we tried to make. I'm making sure that they don't cross because it's important for her 70th birthday. So I don't want to steal any light from her, but just close friends and family will be there, and it's not going to be a big ordeal or anything like that. Dream world, then you get you get selected on on day one. Yeah, and then, and then there's no overlap. There's no overlap. Yeah, we'll see though. I never know. And and I I know the generic answer is going to be you know, it doesn't matter. You're going to put your head down and 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 work hard. But from what you said, you know, going into college, you believe that you were good enough to be on a on a D1 team, and now getting up to this day where you know you may be drafted in the NFL and you're seeing your name on mock drafts. How how exciting and how awesome of a feeling is that? Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's great to see your name, complete strangers writing about you. They did their research. They like you a lot. So they think that you have a chance to play on their favorite team or the team that they report for or cover. So, I mean, it, it's nice to see, but I mean, to me, it doesn't, those names look nice, but it doesn't matter until the actual draft comes across. So how much i mean that kind of touches on one i'll make this my final question i don't know if frank has one to end on but how much then are you paying attention to that level of press coverage going into it i mean again i'm sure there's the answer you're you kind of are supposed to give that it is head down and focused on doing what you can control but is there a temptation to just google yourself and see like what's going on what's being said yeah, I mean, sometimes I don't even have to do it. Sometimes my dad does it and he's like, did you see the article they, that you're in? And I'm like, no, not really. Then I'll go look at it. But yeah, of course, there's some temptation that creeps in and makes me want to go look at it, search your name up a little bit. But I know that it doesn't really matter. So uh, I enjoy it. I soak it in a little bit, but then I know it's get back to work and there's still something to work for. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so I'll make this my last one then, and then we'll let you go. Are you a sports movie guy? And if so, what's what's your favorites? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I would have to say, like, a lot of people don't don't know about this, but I like The Blind Side a lot. I don't know why. When I was a kid, it came out, but The Blind Side is for sure one of my favorite ones. Remember the Titans? Uh, they're on Disney+, Plus. like, you go and see Remember the Titans on there, and I'm, I'm going to watch it, so... Remember the Titans, Sandlot, the Blind Side, Hardball. Yeah, there's a bunch of sports movies out there that I like. Coach Carter, like, yeah. Yeah. Is is that just because adopted by Sandra Bullock? Sandra Bullock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sandra Bullock. Man, she's, she's a nice piece of work, I tell you. <laughs> I don't know if adopted is the right word. <laughs> yeah, I don't think adopted. I wish I was, I wish I was Sean too. <laughs> I wish I was the husband. Adult adopted. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. But yeah, so I mean, best of luck coming up. Uh, you know, really hope everything works out and you, you get picked to the team that you wanted to and hopefully we'll be seeing you next year in the NFL. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks and again. Hopefully, hopefully you get drafted and, and we can have you back on to, to talk about, you, you know, what the NFL life is like, you know. Yeah, sure. It's time. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime, no problem. Awesome. Thanks again. Yeah, yeah no problem. Have a good one, guys. See ya.